0: Bible never says specifically why God chooses one in a special way and not the other. Why God blesses one and not the other. It just tells us what it's never about. It's never about race, hierarchy, or merit. It's never about that. That we can say for sure. And it's never unjust. We can say that too. Paul says in Romans 9.14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So it's not unjust, but we are not told on what basis precisely these sorts of decisions are made. It's it's not race, hierarchy, or personal merit. We We can and we should say that. But beyond that, we should simply cover our mouths and remember that the judge of all things does right. God shows mercy on whom he will, and he has compassion on whom he will. Paul will say no more. And he ends the section appropriately by saying, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Sometimes God makes decisions, and we aren't told on what basis those decisions are being made. We see that all over the pages of Scripture, and we're seeing it again here in this story. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.
0: Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 48. Let's jump right back into the text. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. Now, interestingly, this is the first mention of illness in the Bible. We are 48 chapters into the story of humankind, and this is the first mention of anyone getting sick. That is interesting. It raises the question, Did the people of Cain's day and Noah's day and Abraham's day ever get sick? Or is sickness something that began in the days of Joseph, or more specifically in the last days, the last day maybe, of Jacob? I don't know. And the Bible doesn't say exactly. The Bible says that we are fallen and falling, and it often refers to the diseases of Egypt. As for example, in Deuteronomy 7.15, where Moses says, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. So future blessing, according to Moses, involves an end to diseases and sickness that are associated in some way with the sojourn in Egypt. Now, why exactly that was and what exactly that means is left unexplained in the Bible, but it is interesting. Verse 1 goes on to say, So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me behold i will make you fruitful and multiply you and i will make of you a company of peoples and i will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession now that phrase an everlasting possession is likely intended as a contrast to chapter 47 verse 11 where it says that joseph's father and brothers were granted a holding in the land of Egypt, in the best part of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had instructed. Pharaoh granted them a holding. God gave them an everlasting possession. Only God can give an everlasting possession. Pharaoh's gifts are always and ever fading. Verse 5 says, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So here, Jacob formally and legally adopts the two oldest sons of Joseph, As his own, Ephraim and Manasseh are now to be considered sons of Jacob alongside Reuben and Simeon. In fact, the Jews understood that because of this event, Ephraim replaced Reuben as the legal and spiritual firstborn son of Israel. So First Chronicles 5, 1-2, for example, in giving the genealogy of Jacob, says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest one. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet... The birthright belonged to Joseph, First Chronicles 5, 1-2. So there, the chronicler of later Israel said that although Reuben was in fact the firstborn son of Jacob, he would not be counted as such because he had slept with Bilhah. Therefore, that legal status was conferred upon the sons of Joseph, Ephraim in particular. Now, this does not mean the line of Ephraim would be the line of kings. No, that honor still resides with Judah, the chronicler says, but the legal status of firstborn went to Joseph and specifically to his son Ephraim. And That is why often in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, Israel, the nation, is referred to simply as Ephraim. So for example, we see in Isaiah 11, 13, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Ephraim. Ephraim is Israel, specifically the northern tribes, and Judah is the land of the Davidic kings. All of that stems from this adoption by Jacob in Genesis 48. Verse 7 goes on to say, As for me, when I came to Paden, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Now, this verse is a bit confusing. Why is it here and what does it mean? The JPS Torah commentary is very helpful. It says, traditional commentators, so these would be traditional Jewish commentators, have by and large understood this verse to be an apologia by Jacob for troubling his son with the arduous task of burying him in the cave of Machpelah when he himself had not done the same for Rachel, Joseph's mother. Who had died but a short distance from the site. So, Jacob is attending to the final details of his life, and while doing so, he apologizes and explains why he didn't arrange for Rachel to be buried in the family tomb. He was overcome with grief, and he buried her where she died. Now he is taking more care with his end-of-life arrangements, and that includes formally and legally adopting these two boys as a thank-you gesture to Joseph and a tribute to their grandmother Rachel, whom he fears he did not properly honor in death. Verse 8 says, When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. (laughs) Ironically, Jacob takes great care to ensure that he is blessing the right sons. Jacob is a man who has learned his lessons hard and well. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. Are you seeing this? Jacob is intentionally blessing the younger as if he were the older. He is doing intentionally what he tricked his father into doing accidentally. Verse 15, and he blessed Joseph. Now, the LXX, the Septuagint, has he blessed them to avoid confusion, but the text means that he was blessing the boys as a gift to Joseph. Joseph the one became, through the boys, Joseph the two. He was receiving a double portion in his sons, and he blessed Joseph and said... The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth." The reference to the angel there calls to mind the times that God appeared to Jacob tangibly. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. We teach that to our kids at our church through our little catechism. So when God appears in a body or appears in a visible form, the Bible usually speaks of that as God's angel or the angel of the Lord. We've mentioned that before. Verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. The blessings of God are rarely transmitted as we would suppose in the Bible. This is a a major theme in the New Testament as well. Paul reflects on this at length in Romans chapter 9. He remarks upon the fact that Isaac, but not Ishmael, received the special blessing of God, and from that inferred that blessings are not given on the basis of fleshly relationship alone. Not all the children of Abraham inherit the blessings of God. So it's not about race, and it's not about seniority. He remembered Rachel being told, the older will serve the younger. And it's not about personal merit. He makes that point explicit in Romans 9.11. Although they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9.11-13. So, It's not about race. It's not about seniority. It's not about merit. And so we might ask, well, on what basis then are the promises and blessings of God given? Why are some chosen and some not? He doesn't say specifically. He remembers that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on him whom I have mercy I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans nine fifteen to 16. The Bible never says specifically why God chooses one in a special way and not the other. Why God blesses one and not the other. It just tells us what it's never about. It's never about race, hierarchy, or merit. It's never about that. That we can say for sure. And it's never unjust. We can say that too. Paul says in Romans 9 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So it's not unjust, but we are not told on what basis precisely these sorts of decisions are made. It's it's not race, hierarchy, or personal merit. We we can and we should say that, but Beyond that, we should simply cover our mouths and remember that the judge of all things does right. God shows mercy on whom he will, and he has compassion on whom he will. Paul will say no more. And he ends the section appropriately by saying, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There is some mystery and some inscrutable purpose behind these decisions that we see in the Old and in the New Testament, and we likely won't get the answers to all the questions we have until we meet the Lord on the other side. Verse 21 says, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, we're not told any more information about this particular slope, but it was added unto Joseph, and by that we understand added to the territory allotted to his sons. Joseph thought he had lost it all when he was sold into Egypt as a slave. But here, as with Job, we see the Lord restoring all that the locust has devoured. Joseph has been given 17 years with his father, whom he thought he had lost forever at the age of 17. He has been given a double portion and a mountain slope besides. After he thought he would die, a pauper in Potiphar's prison. As Proverbs 13, 21 says, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, I wanted to let the program audio roll through right to the end here because I love how you handled that issue. The Bible doesn't tell us why God makes some of the choices he makes, and I think we struggle with that. And I think we get into trouble when we start to fill in what the Bible leaves blank. The Bible tells us what is not a factor, but it doesn't tell us what is a factor, and that's probably for the best. Yeah, it is probably for the best, because if we
0: knew why we were chosen, then we almost certainly would boast in that to anyone near enough to listen. We would say, God chose me because he foresaw what a great job I would do with the grace that he supplied. He saw that I would be a very charitable person, or a very good witness, or a very bold preacher, or a very faithful visitor, and therefore he chose me to be a part of the team. How very wise of him. But that would just be a backhanded way of boasting in ourselves. God chose me because I'm awesome. But that isn't how election works. If your doctrine of election gives you something to boast about, then you're doing it wrong. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." boast in the Lord. Mm, I love that passage. Yeah, me too. It's because of him that I am in Christ. It's because of him that you are in Christ. Amen. Now, it might feel to us, it often does feel to us like we are searching for God. But actually, once we mature a bit, we begin to realize that before we were searching for God, he was working in us. He was positioning people to talk to us and positioning people to pray for us. He was searching for us from before the foundation of the world. So where is boasting? Let him who boasts,
1: boast in the Lord. And it sounds like, if anything, God chose people who would best display his mercy and kindness, meaning he chose the low and the foolish so that everyone would know who ought to get the glory.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And that's the tieback into the story in Genesis 48. This story about the younger being chosen over the older is just another dab of ink, as it were, on this point that is being made again and again and again over the course of the Bible. No one gets to presume upon the blessings and favor of God. As soon as you think you are due something, as soon as you think you are owed something, you've lost the gospel, you've lost the plot, and you're heading for trouble.
1: Yeah, I get that, but that begs the question, if we can't know and we shouldn't inquire into this, then— why do we? Why Why is this one of the most common conversations that we have whenever Christians get together?
0: Well, I don't think Paul in Romans 9 is saying that we can't talk about it. I mean, he was talking about it, and he just finished talking about it early in Romans 4. I think he's saying that it is arrogant, foolish, and unhelpful to try and inquire into the reasons for God's choices in the matter of election. It's enough for us to know that none of us deserve salvation. None of us are owed salvation. None of us has a claim on salvation. And it's enough for us to know that we can't take any credit for our salvation. Whatever we did, God did something first. Whatever we saw, it's because the Lord opened our eyes. So we can talk about the doctrine, and we should
1: but only so as to boast in the Lord. Okay, well, that makes sense. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about this as we continue to make our way through the Bible and as we switch over in just a few weeks into the New Testament. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we've got two more weeks in
0: the book of Genesis, and then we'll switch over into the New Testament, and we'll begin to work our way through
1: First and Second Peter. And is that the plan for this program moving forward, to kind of switch back and forth from Old Testament to New? Yeah, I think so. I- I think of it as sort of a a
0: devotional spiral. As we read the Old Testament, the New Testament starts making more sense to us. Then we go back to the Old Testament, and we see things there that we never saw before. And, And once again, that helps us to understand and better appreciate the New Testament. So I do think that this sort of going back and forth thing is the fastest way to develop
1: our understanding and love of the entire Bible. So just out of curiosity then, why first Peter? Like, I sort of thought maybe it makes sense to jump into the Gospel of Matthew, maybe. I, it's sort of like Genesis of the New Testament. If we did that, we could go book for book, testament for testament, one after the other? Yeah, we could do
0: that, but of course the Old Testament is a lot longer than the New Testament. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So 60% of the Bible actually is is the Old Testament.
1: Yeah, okay, that that's true. I, I get it. It's actually amazing to think about that. Probably 90% of our Bible reading comes out of the New Testament. Yeah,
0: and, and probably 95% of the preaching that we hear in church. But the Old Testament is the Word of God also. And as I said, reading the Old Testament helps us to better understand and appreciate the New Testament. So I think we'll go back and forth. Now, as for why we're starting in 1 Peter, well... Actually, most people don't know this, but the epistles, the letters, were written before the gospels in terms of composition date. In fact, there's a strand of church history that suggests that 2nd Peter was actually the cover letter for the Gospel of Mark, which Mark wrote based on dictations he received from the apostle Peter while he was in prison in Rome.
1: Hmm, I didn't know that. So, 1st and 2nd Peter were written before the Gospel of Mark? Yeah, 1st Peter well before, and then 2nd Peter probably just before. And of course,
0: the Gospel of Mark is generally recognized to be the first or earliest of the biblical Gospels. So in a sense, we are starting at the very beginning. The epistles give us our earliest look into the Christianity of the New Testament era. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. That's awesome. It is awesome. But that isn't to say that we would have to start with the epistles just because they were written first. I actually thought it it might be helpful to jump into a book that seems to address our current situation as a church in North America. And First Peter definitely does that. First Peter was written to a group of people just beginning to face the first headwinds of discrimination and hostility from an unbelieving culture. And Peter wrote to steady them and to give them a sense of perspective.
1: Okay, well, that makes a ton of sense, and I can definitely see how that's going to be helpful. I'll be looking forward to that, and I will be looking forward to hearing how this story ends in the book of Genesis, which we'll be talking about over the next two weeks. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word.